Hey guys, this is Tho Bishop of Radio Rothbard, and I want to let you guys know about two great events we have coming up soon. The first is on April 22nd in Birmingham, Alabama, and the focus is The Great Reset. We've got a great lineup including Michael Rechtenwald, Alan Mendenhall, Jonathan Newman, and a reporter from 1819 News, Amy Beth Shaver. Uh, they're going to be talking about the plans of the Davos elite and what Alabama is doing to fight back against it. It's going to be a great event. Then on May 20th, in Reno, Nevada, we have an event dedicated to property, civilization, culture, featuring some Mises and suit heavyweights. The lineup includes Tom DeLorenzo, David Gordon, and Bill Anderson. We always love seeing our audience at these events. It's a great time to network, talk with like-minded people. You won't want to miss these. Find more at Mises.org events and check out our full schedule of events coming up. Hello and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm a senior editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, as usual, is Tho Bishop, my associate editor and our communications director. And uh, we're going to talk about, because we feel like we have to, uh, the Trump, ind <laughs> Trump indictment uh, and uh, the ongoing trial that's starting up there in New York City. And I just kind of wanted to throw out my own kind of personal view on this to get things started. There have been a lot of different conflicting positions on why is the indictment bad. And interestingly, it's kind of really unified even a bunch of people who hate Trump uh, against the indictment. John Bolton was out criticizing it. Uh, Mitt Romney was saying it was a trash indictment, which I think is interesting. Um, I, which I can only assume is, is occurring because uh, it, these guys are afraid for their own <laughs> situation then if they know that this sort of thing is going on. But I don't think the problem is, and a lot of commentary on it has started out as well, uh, if you're arresting uh, former presidents for whatever, that this is somehow necessarily a bad thing. Now, for a real crime... Uh, that is any kind of like fraud, assault, uh, murder, of course, theft, and so on. There, I can't imagine any problem with arresting and prosecuting either a sitting president or a former president. So the issue here isn't really that former presidents should be immune from all prosecution, and neither should sitting presidents, by the way. Uh, that's You don't have rule of law if that's the case. And now America has pretty sketchy, uh, is clinging to some tiny bit of rule of law at this point, but you've got none of it. If you've got some special class of people where, well, once you're president, you can't be prosecuted for anything. And two, and then you just, that's just crazy to think that, uh, that a sitting district attorney could go after a current president or former president. I mean, that, that's not, imagine if a king said that, well, I'm king now, and listen, Parliament, I have executive privilege, and no matter what happens, you can never prosecute me for anything. And we would all know that that's nonsense. In fact, the whole idea, the great thing about Western uh, political ideology and the development of Western law is that it understood that the prince was not above the law. And that no matter who he was, all of that nonsense about how he's special and he has a mandate from heaven and uh, he's God's representative and all that, as much as you hear about divine right of kings and stuff, that's just garbage King said. Most people didn't believe that. Most people uh, understood that the king was just a person 
and should be subject to the law. And this, of course, goes way back in uh, Catholic, Christian, whatever ideals that you want to put it under. That was just the common feeling that grew out of the early Middle Ages. So, yeah, the idea that, well, you know, I'm president, I was in charge. So whatever I did while I was president, it's automatically uh, legal and you can't prosecute. That is a nonsense position. So I'm completely against that. So then that just leads us to the question of, well, did Trump commit a real crime? And so I think what we all know here is that the only reason Trump is being prosecuted and the reason that half the country is cheering it is because they don't like him and he made the government look bad. Uh, I, clearly, this whole thing about don't arrest presidents, don't arrest former presidents, this is just like a gentleman's agreement among scum. And so it's like, hey, hey, well, you know, we're part of this elite class, so we're just going to agree to not prosecute each other. But Trump, he made us look bad. He made the whole system look stupid. So him, we don't have the agreement with. So we're going to prosecute that. So I think anybody who's like remotely honest can see there's like a special double standard here and that... <laughs> that really most former presidents should be in prison or be prosecuted for a variety of corrupt things they have done. And this idea that Trump is the one guy in decades who actually committed some crimes because, boy, it's just been a long, endless train of really clean presidents, one after the other. And we just couldn't come up with anything to prosecute them on. Boy, if you believe that, if you believe there was some sort of golden age of the rule of law in the past— and it's just breaking down now and that uh, <laughs> there was nothing to prosecute on in the past. Man, you were played. I mean, that's just so obviously not the way things are. So we need to look beyond this idea. There's nothing special about presidents. However, we do need to look deeper and see just how the system now is there. I think this whole, just, this whole thing just really shows how the system is there to protect the people who are in that special ruling class club. And if you ain't in it, well, you're just subject to all sorts of abuses from the regime. Right. Something that comes to mind is that this debate was had on a, a larger level back in the Clinton days. I remember a few months ago, I was watching the old clip of Ann Coulter with Bill Buckley. And Coulter was taking the position that obviously uh, Clinton's behavior in office and some of the stuff preceding it with the Arkansas investigations and all of that – there was a clear case to be made for even the sort of higher threshold that you might be able to argue within, you know, how do you treat a president, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors, right? And Buckley was taking, was, was strongly pushing back against Coulter's argument. Coulter was basically saying, look, if there's nothing done to Clinton here, you're going to have a continual decay of the, the character and quality of the president and yada, yada, yada. But, but Buckley was taking very much this sort of institutional line that, oh, well, you know, that, that brings politicalization into the justices of things like that, where th that was already at play. You, you had created this sort of facade that was able to be used to sort of elevate the political class into having a set of rules and laws that everyone else didn't have to play with. And I think that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned um, you know, Bolton and Romney's criticism of the indictment, uh, Justin Amash, who certainly no friend of Trump either, um, and, and someone who, you know, is, is no friend of Bolton and Romney, he himself has also criticized this. But I think that also kind of comes back to this uh, instinctual sort of fallback into trying to prop up these sort of, of political norms. And yet, 
this doesn't really work in a society where any sort of, you know, sort of a social norm, sort of, of, of gentlemen's agreement on how we conduct political affairs is a road in the ground. You, you don't have that when you have different interest groups with, you know, un, you know un, unrecognizable, un, unabridgeable gaps. And then politics becomes the conquest for power. And what we have right now is that the Democrats or, or the left or however you want to, you know, label Trump's opponents here seem just far more motivated yet again to actually you know, take seriously um, their political aims. And I, I think that's one of the interesting things where you have now multiple and, and, you know, it's worth noting that this just because New York City was first in this, we might be visiting this sort of story again in a few months because you still have open investigations in Georgia. You still have open investigations on the federal level. You're going back to the election stuff and the January 6th committee and all that sort of fun stuff. Um, so, so here I think there's another, another dynamic where the Democrats recognize that kind of shopping around for jurisdictions by which to, to bring about political charges. I mean, it, does, does, does Donald Trump really have a jury of his peers if he is being prosecuted in New York City or Washington, D.C., given what we know about the makeup of these areas, you know, even if a an attorney is able to remove, you know, maximize the amount of jurors he is able to you know, kick out of the pool, you know, in this hyper politicized environment, you know, it, it's going to be very difficult to, to to clean that to a point where you have anything resembling sort of a, a unopinionated jury, particularly the figure of Donald Trump with the the infamy and notoriety uh, that that he has. Um, and again, you know, it's just the, the sort of facade that a lot of people desire political processes to work when really some, some strain gets on there, they, they, they fall apart. Um, and, you know, this is this is where, where America is right now. And, and uh, you know, it's once again, the, the left takes this stuff a lot more seriously than the right. And I'll be interested to see if any lessons are learned. And if we end up, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the, the best thing that could happen from this entire situation would be for you know, red states to take serious of the crimes of Democrat politicians and actually be willing to pursue them so that we actually have some sort of, of equalizing, um, you know, in terms of, of what justice really means. Um, and I'm not, not sure that's really going to happen, right? You know, the, the, the right, you know, so often, you know, seems to default into that, that role of beautiful loser. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it, it, I think once again, where we're seeing yet another form of, of a, a much larger trend that goes beyond Trump, it goes beyond this indictment, um, but just that that general erosion of political norms in this country. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting to note that one of the chief complaints of the American revolutionaries was that they didn't get a jury of their peers, right? If they were accused by the crown of some crime, which was often just some BS crime of treason or something like that, uh, they'd, they'd ship them back to England, where you would then be put on trial. Uh, by non-peers. And everybody knew that was garbage. Uh, and so that's essentially what you have here is where can we find a jury who we know is going to hate Trump? And then we'll we'll put him on trial there. Now, the charges in this case are mostly uh, centered around state law. And it's an attempt. And I, for anyone who wants to know the legal stuff, I'm not really going to go deep into the legal stuff here, uh, partly because I'm not a lawyer. 
and uh, secondly, because it doesn't actually, the details of the law don't interest me <laughs> that much. Uh, but Bill Anderson has done, I think, uh, a sufficient job of really analyzing sort of the legal principles here. So check out check out Bill's uh, article from Mises.org on that. And uh, that's from a few days ago, and that's titled, with the, with the Trump indictment, the U.S. becomes more like a banana republic. So uh, look at that one. Uh, but I think a point that Bill makes is that these are this is an attempt to use state law to construe what Trump did into a felony because it was based on concealing some other crime. Now, what is that crime? It's uh, apparently a federal, quote unquote, crime that Trump was never actually indicted for or prosecuted for or charged with. And so it's it's this crime that Trump isn't accused of doing. But it's it's an attempt to use state law and say, oh, there was that other thing, and we think that was a crime, and he was uh, falsifying business records to cover up that crime that he was never actually prosecuted for and therefore didn't commit uh, legally. And so it's this bizarre way of tying together uh, state laws based on some sort of federal violation, and Bill also compares it to federal racketeering laws, which is also which are also nonsense laws, which take a bunch of non-illegal activities tie them together and say, oh, look, this was all part of some sort of criminal conspiracy. So you could be guilty of racketeering just by doing a bunch of non-illegal stuff and then a bunch of prosecutors decide, well, if you put them together in this special order, then you can see that it was all part of a conspiracy. And so this these aren't real crimes. And that's a lot of what federal law is based on. And, and there are so many problems with federal law. And I've said that many times uh, on Mises.org. And one of the things is just what you point out here, right, is that federal law, the use of federal courts, which can, there are federal courthouses everywhere, and you can try federal crimes in all sorts of places and change venues. You can then shop around for venues, shop around uh, for a venue that works, for a judge, for a, for a jury uh, that works for me, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll try the person there. And that is just so obviously dishonest and has nothing to do with the interest of justice. But of course, DAs have never really been primarily uh, concerned with justice or the law. Uh, some are, but uh, I would say it's a safe bet that most DAs are concerned with just putting away the bad guys, however you define that. And for a lot of DAs, Trump is the bad guy. So anything I can get him on, that's going to be fine. And so we'll just, we've got federal law to draw on, we've got state law to draw on, and federal law is totally unnecessary. And it just, it just amazes me how many people who also claim to be for decentralization or federalism and so on, they're fine with all of these trumped-up federal charges being applied to, to, to people like racketeering, like, right, I, I uh, pulled the wrong sort of fish out of the ocean, and there wasn't any way a reasonable per person could have known this was a federal law, but now I'm looking at 10 years in prison. Look, if anything's a real crime, there's already a state law against it. Murder, theft, fraud, uh, making threats against people, making people's lives miserable. If it's a real crime, there's already a state law against it. And the, the, the use of federal law, which was recently uh, an issue in the, in the Supreme Court, well, a couple of years ago, um, when the court voted uh, eight to one, uh, the only good vote on that being the who's the, uh, the fairly libertarian judge uh, from out west that's on the Supreme Gorsuch. Court, the younger guy. Yeah, the only good vote on that was Gorsuch. And uh, he recognized that most federal law is really just a way to uh, get around the double jeopardy law. That it's like, oh, we tried you on a state 
uh, fraud charge. You didn't get convicted. So now we'll just come up with a federal fraud charge to charge you on. So we'll try you for the same crime essentially twice. Um, and so it's always just been there as a method of really just trying to get people who no state jury would convict and who, you know, by any reasonable person would then conclude you couldn't get a conviction. So therefore they weren't legally guilty. Uh, but federal law is, it's just a great tool in the hands of the regime, uh, to screw people. And also it should always be noted that federal courts, federal prosecutors, they have essentially limitless budgets. So they can just keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you're broke and bankrupt and your life is ruined. And they've still got endless money behind that. And that's why only guys like uh, Mark Cuban, who are billionaires, really have any chance at all of surviving a lot of these federal prosecutions. And so anyone should be able to, anyone who's actually concerned about justice should be able to look at this and just see what a fraudulent system the whole thing is and, and how selective uh, the, the prosecution is and how we're taking, we're shipping people off to juries and far off places. And it's just really has no connection to anything that we would consider to be a rule of law. And yeah, that whole issue of, hey, <laughs> we know people in New York hate Trump, so we'll try him there. I would love to see it, of course, as we just discussed, as I just said 10 minutes ago, I don't care if you want to arrest uh, presidents or the families of presidents or former presidents or whatever, so long as they're they're being prosecuted for actual crimes. And I completely agree with you that it would be great if state DAs were doing this, right? I mean, does anyone really think that the Clintons aren't guilty of all sorts of corruption in Arkansas? And what about a variety of things that the Bidens have pulled off in several states, in Delaware, and uh, I think Virginia also and elsewhere? But the thing is, conservatives are mostly spineless when it comes to that sort of thing, just like it's only been the left that's been willing to nullify federal laws for the most part, like on pot and the sort of thing like that. So I'm not sure how much of that we're going to see, but how delightful it would be to hear from a president uh, who's running for reelection and they say to their aides, well, uh, we can, we can't I can't campaign in Tennessee because I'm wanted on uh <laughs> I'm wanted on charges there, and I'll be arrested if I set foot in that state. So suddenly there would be these these states that uh, sitting presidents or former presidents can never visit. Just like I suspect that there's a reason uh, George W. Bush doesn't leave the country very often. It's because he could very well be arrested for a variety of um, uh, war crimes, which, of course, the United States says if anyone tries to charge one of our presidents with war crimes, we'll bomb the hell out of that country is basically the standing threat. Uh, but if I was a former president, I'd be real careful about what countries I visited. It should absolutely be the same in the Mer in America. You got to be real careful about what states you visit, because of course you've left a whole trail of corruption and crime in various places. You've uh, been a, a politician or have had various corrupt business dealings, and now the DAs there are after you. That is fine with me. I think that would be delightful. Yeah, dreaming of an America where you have no go zones for politicians. I I, I do think there is some. <laughs> you could sell me on that concept. And in fact, I think this comes to a very interesting dynamic because you have, you know, so so given that this is a, a political act, you know, we can tie it back to the broader political theater because you did have another actor on the stage, um, which was Governor DeSantis in Florida, who was attacked by Trump supporters for a um, a, a insufficient defense of Trump or pushback of the indictment uh, when it first came out about a week prior to um, the indictment coming down. Um, he followed up 
with a statement saying, absolutely, the state of Florida will not cooperate with this indictment. And that could have created a very interesting dynamic where what would happen if Trump refused to leave Mar-a-Lago or the state of Florida, you had Florida law enforcement um, directed to explicitly not support extradition um, for the state of New York with this case. Um, that would have created, you know, a, a larger constitutional issue because of certain obligations that states are expected to have when dealing with um, charges from other states. And maybe that would have worked so long as Trump stayed in Florida. But of course, Trump is a political candidate who has plans on visiting other states. And so then that would have created this dynamic where, you know, would, would Trump only be able to do campaign events in friendly jurisdictions? So maybe, you know, Kim Reynolds in Iowa makes the same sort of statement for Iowa, right? And so, so you could have seen a dynamic where, where, you know, Trump's campaign map would have been in, 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 directly connected to the willingness of the governor to stand up to New York, which would have kind of helped sort of, you know, fuel some of this fire um, and, and creating a, a more decentralized sort of dynamic there. Um, of course, you know, Trump, I think, desired, you know, for his own political purposes, he, he wanted the optics, right, of being brought in. It seems to have been a boon to his um, political polling. Um, I know even talking to people around here that were getting a little tired of Trump and his attacks on DeSantis, you know, kind of did a, a well, you know, if they're going to take down Trump, well, then screw them, right? So, so I, I think there has been, you know, it's been interesting from, from if you watch Trump world, Trump's Trump team seems to be far more concerned still at, about DeSantis than he does brag. It's interesting. Well, we'll see how that continues going forward. Um, but again, you can't disconnect at all the politics from this um, to this dynamic. And it, it, we, we were kind of close there to having this very interesting new battleground into how states cooperate with other states um, divided by these underlying political dynamics. Um, which I, I think is something, you know, even what's not the case here, I, I, I don't think this is something that we are, um, I, don't, I don't think the temperature is going to go down anytime soon. And the extent to which the justice system, um, we, we see these sort of trials for political purposes extend beyond simply political figures. There's another case that is worth noting also involving uh, New York, um, which was a um, social media influencer. Um, a guy named Douglas Mackey, who was convicted last week, faces up to 10 years in prison for the crime of creating an anti-Hillary Clinton meme back in the you know, far back days of 2016. Um, and so something that, again, given the American tradition of freedom of speech, um, you know, we, we've now seen the political nature, you know, they, they, they connected it to, oh, tampering with elections, right? Because, oh, he was spreading political misinformation. The meme in question was something to along the lines of, you know, hey, Hillary Clinton voters, um, you know, for your convenience, you can text in your vote, you know, whatever. So, so, so now you actually have, um, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office in, New, uh, in the Eastern District of New York was actually not only able to, to bring up this man on charges, but actually get a conviction, again, facing up to 10 years in jail, for something that is historically, right, I mean, un unthinkable, right, imagine the, you know, lying in a political campaign, right, oh, heaven forbid, right, that, that, that so goes against the longstanding American tradition. Um, but now you're actually seeing the justice system not only being wielded against politicians in the narrow sphere, but simply 
uh, political supporters uh, pushing various types of, you know, again, this, this, this was, you know, meme to me that there's, 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 a, there's a certain IQ test that is, is beneficial to, <laughs> to, to elections by, by, by filtering out anyone who goes along with that sort of plan. I, mean, I, I think, if anything, you know, thank you, Douglas Mackey, for his service. Um, but but you know, this is something that is going to be broad and beyond simply politicians. And again, the question is, what degree do, you know, red states and people that oppose the political agenda of those pushing these prosecutions end up enforcing on their own side? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. And it just brings up the whole sketchiness of uh, federal election, federal campaign law in general and how it's now spreading to regular people. And if you go back and you read Lou Rockwell's old uh, great articles, right, it's always federal campaign law is mostly garbage because who you give money to, how you decide to express your support for a campaign, it's just a freedom of speech and property issue. It's the idea that there needs to be federal laws governing this sort of thing is, of course, quite novel to the 20th century, first of all. And secondly, it's clearly a violation of the First Amendment. And since we are talking about federal controls here, that's what it applies to. Now, if you wanted to have state uh, controls on giving to campaigns and so on, that would be a matter for state constitutions. But uh, none of this federal law that, of course, is a lot of it's at the core of all the Trump prosecution as well in terms of campaign finance and all of that stuff. And it's they're always that that's something there's so much complexity there. It's easy to try and tie that up in terms of, oh, did they violate some minor uh, minor aspect of uh, campaign finance law. It's just like you can never be sure that you haven't violated somehow the Internal Revenue Code, right? I mean, try as you might. If they try hard enough, I'm sure they could probably find you on something, uh, as minor as it may be. And so th that's what we're looking at right now. And, and I think maybe should just really remind us that how elections are conducted in a state should be the matter for that state, just like the, the way that, elect, that campaigns are funded in a state should be the matter for that state, especially since campaign finance tends to be a local issue in terms of media buys specific to state areas and that sort of thing. And it, uh, it's just there's so many layers now of federal and state law that you can you can get somebody on anything. And then the real key issue here is that it's only selectively applied to the people that the regime doesn't like. And you can see that here with just regular people who get prosecuted for div divulging secrets, something that Hillary could get away with, whereas some nobody who like uh, served in the Navy gets prosecuted. And then, well, Trump made the CIA look bad. So therefore, we're going to charge him with with crimes, whereas you could be some other guy like Mitt Romney and you get away with anything because you're in the club. And I think that's the real issue at hand here. Not not should there be protections for presidents or former presidents and so on. It's just, I think, really revealing of how the regime actually functions. But I think that's about all we can really squeeze out of this issue uh, <laughs> for this episode of, of Radio Rothbard. Uh, so we'll go ahead and leave it at that for this week. We will, of course, be back uh, next week for more, and we will see you next time. <laughs> 